0: Amen. Thank you so much. If you would turn to Acts chapter 13. One way or the other. Whatever Bible you're using, Acts chapter 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You want to look at the latter part of this chapter. We've been talking about offering the water of life to people. Obviously, that's... Just a way of talking about proclaiming the gospel, letting people know that God calls all men to repent and believe in Jesus and find forgiveness of sins, find eternal life in Him. And so we want to look at the latter part of this chapter and think about how it applies to what we've already talked about in terms of sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and what we should expect of our efforts in that regard and how to look at our efforts in that regard. As I've been saying every week so far, I've been quoting Charles Spurgeon who said to make ourselves happy, we must make others happy. And that principle is seen in scripture in a lot of different ways and it applies to a lot of different things. But in this case, we're applying it to talking with those who don't know Christ and encouraging us to pursue their happiness. Because the reality is that, Everyone's pursuing their happiness, but not everyone. In fact, most people around us are probably pursuing their happiness in something other than God. They're pursuing their happiness in material wealth or just having fun, pleasure. Um, they may be pursuing it and just doing what they think is the, the good thing to do or whatever it might be, but God is not really on the radar. He might be in the picture in some sense, but he's really not at the heart of their pursuit. They don't really look to God to make them happy. And they they aren't looking to Jesus as a way of being reconciled to the God who actually created us to be happy. Do we think God is happy? Well, Jesus said that he came and he told us what he told us, that we might have his joy. So that implies that Jesus, God, uh, has joy and is truly happy and is indeed the most happy being in the universe and that sin is is something that actually robs us of happiness that obviously is the problem of not being holy and so jesus came that we might be holy so that we might be truly happy in god and so in talking to people about the gospel we're really talking to them about something that is on their radar in terms of truly being happy. They just may not realize it. They may not understand that that's really what it's all about. In Acts chapter 13, the whole chapter is about Paul's first missionary journey. Where he and Barnabas leave Syria, which is north of Israel. They go to an island in the Mediterranean called Cyprus. And they preach the gospel there. Then they leave that island and they go back to the mainland. And they go to what is currently modern Turkey. And so where we are in the chapter at this point, they're in a synagogue. Uh, Paul is preaching the gospel and there have been some people that have responded and they've asked them to come back and preach again uh, the next Sunday in this synagogue. And so the chapter is very much about uh, what Paul and Barnabas are doing and sharing the gospel with the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But we would be mistaken to think that that was their idea. That Paul looked at Barnabas and said, hey, why don't we go and just travel around telling the Gentiles about Jesus? It's very clear at the beginning that the Holy Spirit sets them apart for the work that he chose them to do. Now, why is that significant? Because it says it was God's heart to save people. And it's God's heart that we're to communicate to people when we share the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel in various ways. Well, what I want to focus on in light of the verses we're going to read in just a minute, verses 44 through the end of the chapter, is that we really need to come to grips with a friendship in the Bible. Um, In 1970 or so, there was a TV show called The Odd Couple. It was about uh, two men that were divorced and they began living together together. And yet they were very different. Um, One was very neat and proper. The other one was basically, you know, what he would, you know, the other one would call a slob or whatever. And they were put together and they were living together and they were opposites. And it resulted in a lot of conflict, but a lot of funny stuff as well because it was meant to be a funny show. But it's a picture of the fact that... um, Opposites can live together. And you might just look over at your spouse and say, yes, opposites can live together. Uh, Because most of the time, husbands and wives find out that as much as they might be alike, there are some real differences uh, between them. And we have to recognize that there are truths in the scripture, just like I highlighted in the prayer time, the truth that God has predestined everything. And yet he calls us to pray. Those two things do not seem logically compatible. It seems like if one is true, the other one should not apply. And yet they're both in the Bible. And we see the same kind of thing in this, uh, these verses in the latter part of this chapter. Um, when you think about the issue of our responsibility to talk to unbelievers about the gospel, there are three views that can be taken, basically. One is a more Arminian view that basically says, it's my responsibility to convince people to trust in Christ. That view gives us too much responsibility. There's another view that is a Kuiper calvinist view that basically says, um, I'm not really responsible to say anything because God's going to save who God's going to save. And it results in irresponsibility response and results in indifference. That's another ditch. So I can be too responsible or I can be irresponsible. And both of those are unbiblical positions. The biblical position is to say that I should properly trust God and love people by sharing the gospel, knowing that God is sovereign over salvation and that he offers Eternal life to every person I talk to, and we're to hold those two things together. J.I. Packer, who I think has since uh, has gone on to be with the Lord, um, but a reformed theologian, talks about the, what is called an antinomy. It's technically it means something that is an a Apparently unresolvable conflict or contradiction it, it appears to be something that cannot be resolved and he says there are truths in the Bible that are antinomies that you put them together, and it is a mystery he says to know how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together but if you're biblical. Both must be treated as true. Otherwise, you get into one ditch or the other. He quotes Spurgeon, who was asked one time, Can you reconcile the truth of God's sovereignty over all, including salvation and human responsibility? And he said, I never reconcile friends. You don't have to reconcile friends. Friends are not enemies. Friends are not at odds with each other. And that's why I mentioned before, we need to really think about the reality that there are friendships in the Bible. Truths that seem apparently contradictory that are not enemies to each other and and do not cancel out each other, but they are friends to one another. And we are to recognize that friendship, embrace that friendship, and do what God calls us to do in light of that friendship. And so this passage is one of those passages that highlights uh, one of these friendships that we find in the scripture. So look at verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. And were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it. And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them. And went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. So there are several things, a number of things that I wanted to point out in this passage before we make some application. The first thing is in verse 45, it says that when Paul and Barnabas came back the second Sabbath to do some more preaching because they'd been requested to do so, the Jews, implying the leaders of the synagogue and leading Jews in the area, didn't like the idea that Paul and Barnabas were drawing such a crowd. They became jealous. And it says they began blaspheming. And the word blaspheme means to slander. It means to um, injure the reputation of someone. So who were they blaspheming? Well, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. So so the implication is they were slandering not only Paul and Barnabas, but God and Jesus. They were trying to keep people from believing the message. And so they were basically slandering the good God who was telling them how they could be saved from their sins. And one of the things that happens is that, The opposition we see in the book of Acts to the spread of the gospel is Satan at work. Spreading lies, spreading slander against God, slander against Jesus, slander against Christians to keep people from believing the truth. And that's why Paul could talk about that same kind of thing in Romans 3 when he says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. In Romans 3 8, Paul is highlighting the fact that they're preaching the gospel and people are twisting their words in order to undermine the message and to slander God, slander Jesus, slander them. So we shouldn't be surprised if, as we try to talk to people about the good news of the gospel, that There may be some who take what we say and twist it in certain ways. And it's because the enemy of our souls is out to keep people from believing. The second thing is in verse 46. Interestingly enough, in light of this opposition, it says that Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, talking about the Jews the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He says, since you repudiate it, that word repudiate means to thrust out or to push away. It's the idea that in in the book of Exodus, it talks about um, Moses tried to uh, break up uh, two uh, men that were fighting. And one of the men pushed him away and said, who are you? Uh, acting like a ruler over us. The same word is used here with regard to the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to the Jews, and they say, no, thank you. Probably didn't use the word no, thank you, but we won't have it. Get out of here. We don't want it. And so just think about what is happening here. A good God is telling people good news, and they violently reject it. You think if a good good person was offering you a good gift, you would be surprised at a violent rejection of it. But that's exactly what's happening here because the lie of the enemy is it's not good news. Just like the serpent told Eve in the garden, uh, God is trying to keep something from you. What he has told you to do and to trust him for is really not good. It's really meant to rob you of your happiness, not actually lead you to happiness. Well, it goes on from there in verse 46. Paul says that not only have they rejected the good news and thrust it away from them, but that they are fully responsible for what they've done. Interestingly enough, he uses a a phrase that might be a little confusing. He says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You judge yourselves unworthy. There's there's another use of that in Matthew 22. The story of the king who's throwing a banquet for his son. And he tells the servants to go out and invite uh, people or at least tell people who were invited to come. And they say, you know, we're busy. We've got things to do. We're not going to come. And it says uh, in verse eight, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready but those who were invited were not worthy. Which is an interesting way of putting it. He doesn't say they simply chose not to come. He says they're not worthy of the offer. Which is another way of saying they've rejected the offer. They rejected something that they ought to have welcomed. It's it's a, a way of uh, expressing the unbelievable action of someone who is offered an amazing gift and rejects it. And so we have here Paul and Barnabas saying that they are fully responsible for what is happening. That they themselves have judged themselves unworthy. They themselves are responsible for rejecting this good gift, this offer of mercy. In a sense, you could say they're rejecting or refusing their own happiness. The word uh, or the phrase eternal life is used there. You've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And the picture of eternal life in the Bible is a picture of the happiness our hearts desire. It's the full and lasting happiness of heaven on earth. And yet it begins here because it's defined in this way in John 17. This is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We looked at Revelation 21 and 22. The heart of heaven on earth is God and people being able to interact with God face to face, just like Adam and Eve did before they fell in the Garden of Eden. That None of us are going to be truly happy apart from truly experiencing the God who created us. That is what's going to satisfy our souls. And so to refuse the way to be reconciled to God is to refuse my own happiness. And so Paul is saying you have not simply rejected a message. You've rejected eternal life. You rejected uh, your own happiness. Well, he goes on to say, you've rejected the gospel, but we're going to continue preaching the gospel and we're going to take it to the Gentiles. And so he quotes Isaiah 49, 6. And he says in verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, obviously God is the one who saves, but he says, you're going to bring it. You're going to bring that light. You're going to be that light. And so... The idea of the light there is something that illuminates a path. So, what are we doing when we tell people the gospel? We're illuminating the path to forgiveness and eternal life. We're illuminating the path. This is the way to be forgiven of your sins. This is the way to be truly, fully, and forever happy in God. And that way is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man comes to full and lasting happiness apart from me. And Philippians tells us that you and I are that light as well when it says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Probably more than any time in my life, I feel like those words crooked and perverse generation apply to my country more than any time in my life right now. And yet I don't condemn, but I seek to communicate. I seek to be a light. That's what we should do during this time is to seek to be lights in the world, to say this is the path. Um, Trust God for what you need and desire. He goes on from there, after emphasizing that they have chosen themselves to reject their own happiness, he goes on to highlight, or this passage goes on to highlight, the fact that God still saves people through all that was taking place, and yet God in his sovereignty was behind their salvation. It says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, heard that Paul and Barnabas were in a continue preaching to the Gentiles uh, for their salvation. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now it does not say as many as believed were then appointed to eternal life. It says, All those who were appointed to eternal life believed. So it's very, very clear that the appointment to eternal life came before the belief. The idea is the idea of being inscribed. When it says appointed, it can be the idea of being inscribed or enrolled. Uh, as in a book, we have we talked about in Revelation, the book of life. It says in Revelation 13, 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book, Of life of the Lamb who has been slain. That verse highlights the idea that there are those who aren't believing, and they're not believing because they haven't been written in the book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But that implies that there are those whose names have been written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. And so Luke, in writing the book of Acts, talking about what's going on in this situation with Paul and Barnabas, preaching the gospel in this synagogue. And and he talks about uh, the fact that Paul and Barnabas made it very clear that those who did not believe were fully responsible for not believing. But then he also makes it clear that those who did believe were saved because of God's sovereign grace and mercy In their lives. And it goes on from there. In verse 31. uh, We find out that as a result of. What happened. The Jews get together. The leading women and leading men. And they uh, mount a persecution. And they drive out Paul and Barnabas. And it says. In verse. um, 51. They shook off the dust of their feet. You Ever wonder what that's all about you may have heard before but the idea is if you shake off the dust of your feet like you're going from the outside your backyard to inside your house you're doing that because you don't want the dust to come in your house so you're knocking it off the jews if they traveled in a gentile country when they got to the borders of israel would dust off their feet before they stepped into israel They didn't even want the dust of the pagan heathens in Israel. It was an expression of condemnation that you guys don't know the true God. And therefore, we don't even want your dust here. So why did Paul and Barnabas do that? Well, Jesus told his disciples when they were ministering while he was on earth. He said, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. So it's not just like the, the Jews toward the Gentiles were doing it basically to say, we hate you, we despise you. That's not what Paul and Barnabas are doing. What they're doing is they're testifying to the fact that you have rejected a life-saving message and you are fully responsible for what you've decided to do. And there's only one option. If you refuse the offer of mercy, judgment is coming. It's a testimony that judgment is coming because you've rejected the only hope for mercy. So it was a testimony to them. It wasn't a way of condemning them from their hearts. It was a way of saying, Do you understand the significance of what you're doing? You're rejecting the only path to life. Well, then finally, In verse 52, it talks about um, the disciples who had believed, those who had believed from the preaching and teaching. It says they were filled with joy by the Holy Spirit because their names are written in heaven, I believe. It says in verse 52, they were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Just think about the situation. Paul and Barnabas have just been driven out. Uh, There's a persecution against Christians taking place. And they're filled with joy. You'd think they'd be running for cover. You'd think they'd be scared to death. The, the guys that preached the message to us just a few days ago, we believed and now they're gone. They've been run off. And what are they going to do to us? You'd think that maybe they'd be terrified and they'd be hiding and they'd be overwhelmed and sad. It says they were filled with joy. Why? So we're filled with the Holy Spirit, which tells me that the Holy Spirit is filled with joy. The Holy Spirit, God is a happy God. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with God is to be filled with true happiness. And that is the only source of my happiness and your happiness. It's even stated more clearly in First Thessalonians 1, 6, when... Paul is talking to the Thessalonians who were suffering too. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, just like here, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's not just the joy given by the Holy Spirit. That's the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy that the Holy Spirit has Himself that He gives to us. But I think it's also... In light of the context of this, it's important to realize that in the ministry of Jesus, when the disciples came back from preaching and they said, you know, it's really great, um, Jesus, when we can cast out demons and they're subject to us, and it's just so much fun. And he says, essentially, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Bottom line is, regardless of what success you might be having, having no matter what your circumstances are, whether you're being persecuted or being praised, let your rejoicing be that your name is written in heaven. Your name is written in heaven. Well, let me just make some application here before we wrap up and have us think through this just a little bit in light of all that we've talked about so far. Because obviously, uh, this part of the chapter is meant to encourage us to do what we've talked about in the earlier part of the chapter with regard to sharing the gospel with people the first point of application is you and i aren't responsible for unbelief meaning as i share the gospel or as you share the gospel or we try to communicate uh, the good news of the gospel with people uh, we need to see that we are not responsible for their rejection of the gospel Um, it says in verse 46, Paul says, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul does not say, uh, I wish I'd preached the gospel better to you. It's our fault that, that you didn't believe. No, he says, it's your fault that you're not Believing in fact, in verse fifty one when it says they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them it's a it's a clear act of saying you're responsible for the judgment you're bringing upon yourself because you refuse to receive the offer of mercy and so when we think about people rejecting the gospel, we need to ask the question who is responsible for unbelief? is it the preacher not the formal preacher but just the person sharing the gospel proclaiming the gospel even one-on-one in your own family or whatever who is responsible is it is because i didn't share it well enough it's because i didn't use just the right scripture i didn't um you know explain it as well as i should have is that is that why people aren't believing the bible says no doesn't mean we shouldn't try to explain it well, try not to be uh, a hindrance to people, but ultimately, that's not why people don't believe. And so, whether it's your own children growing up in your own home, whether it's your neighbor that you talk to off and on over the course of your life, whether it's your coworker that you've been talking to for years, and they're still not believing. Bible says it's not because of you or any other preacher and it's not because of God God predestines all things he's sovereign over all things but the Bible never says that unbelief is God's fault it never says that in fact it makes it very clear that it is the unbelievers fault we are personally responsible for our own unbelief Charles Spurgeon's mother, he remembered his mother would work with all of uh, him, uh, his siblings and him as well and teach them and and work with them um, in various ways. But he remembers his mother saying something along these lines, I think praying. She said, now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. She did not say it would be my fault as a mother because I did not teach my children well enough if they don't believe. She said on judgment day, if they don't believe, I will have to bear swift witness against them that they themselves have chosen not to trust in Christ. So she lays the, the burden of response at their feet. Think about the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to be saved? And Jesus starts with the commandments. And he says, I've done all that. At least he thought he had done all that. And Jesus says, Well, one thing you lack, you need to sell everything and come and follow me. And he is grieved because he's very wealthy and he walks away. And Jesus doesn't say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me explain it to you differently. Maybe you didn't understand. No, he says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. He says, it's that gentleman right there. It's his fault. It's because he will not let go of his own riches to follow me. He is fully responsible for his un." Paul makes this even more clear in Romans 2, verse 4 and following, where he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Hear what Paul is saying there? He's saying God in his kindness is leading people, pointing people to repentance and life in Jesus. Paul says, but if you stay in your unbelief, it's because, not because God, it's not God's fault. And it's not my fault in preaching to you. says it's because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. And as a result, you're storing up wrath for yourself. He puts the responsibility squarely upon the one who refuses to believe. And we are to understand and see that truth in Scripture, lest we take on too much responsibility in our sharing. Ultimately, we get all the blame for the unbelief in our lives. We can't blame God and we can't blame others. I share this in light of talking about the gospel because we might think that if I don't share it just right and they don't believe, then I've just been a hindrance to them. And so if we don't think we know the gospel well enough to share it and we're just going to keep people out of the kingdom because of our poor sharing of the gospel, then we may just not say anything. But if we understand that ultimately if someone walks away they can't simply point to us on Judgment Day and say, your poor presentation of the gospel is why I never believed. They can't say that. God says, share the gospel, share the good news. Don't take on too much responsibility as if you're responsible for per- people's unbelief. Paul could even say in 2 Corinthians thirteen eight, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. We, we can't keep people out of the kingdom by our imperfect presentations of the gospel. We aren't responsible for unbelief, but we are responsible to witness. And so again, one ditch is being too responsible, another ditch is being irresponsible. And we need to understand the difference between the two. And we need to remember that there's a sense in which what we're called to do it's like I read about someone who was talking about being an ER nurse. I probably could get Linda to tell me about this. But what this person said was part of this person's training was if somebody comes in and they're not breathing and you might not even know exactly what to do, uh, do something. Do something. Even if you don't know exactly what to do. And this person was applying that to sharing the gospel. You might not think you know exactly what to say, But say something, say something that will point people to life in Christ. The second application that's important here is not only aren't we responsible for people's unbelief, we're not responsible for people's belief when they actually believe. In light of offering the water of life, we need to see that we are not responsible when people actually receive the gospel, we're not responsible for the rejection of the gospel. We're not responsible for the receiving of the gospel either. Verse 48, as many as been appointed to eternal life, believed. So think about the fact that you believe. You've trusted in Christ. If you have, who's responsible for that? Was it the preacher that you heard on the day that you believed? Was it was it your parents who taught you? Are they ultimately responsible for your belief? Is it you? You were just smart enough and brilliant enough to recognize that life is found in Jesus. The Bible says it's not the preacher who's responsible for belief and it's not the believer. It's ultimately God. God gets the glory for our believing. And so on the one hand, we're responsible for our unbelief but we're not responsible for our belief. And there's a lot that goes into that, a lot that's true about where we are as sinners and what God does in order to bring us to belief. But those are the foundational things that we have to keep in mind. Um, to me, a good illustration of this in terms of how it applies that, well, excuse me, applies to sharing the gospel is I've shared before the story about this young man in Florida who got saved. Uh, he had a speech impediment. He didn't know how to read, he had learning disabilities, but he wanted to be a witness for Christ. And so he got some tracks. He identified some co-workers and friends. He would walk up to them and say, you know, I can't read. Could you read this for me? And they would read it to him. And somehow, by God's sovereign grace, many, many people were saved through that process. So you couldn't say it was his eloquence and sharing the gospel. It was God's sovereign mercy and grace through a very weak person who just was available and wanted to be used by God in that way. One of the clearest illustrations in scripture of the fact that God is sovereign over the salvation of men is the. Conversion of Paul himself. Paul is preaching the gospel here. And Luke is recording the fact that those who believed in light of the preaching of the gospel of Paul. Believe because they are appointed to eternal life. And Paul himself when he was Saul was on his way to Damascus. And was struck down by a, a blinding light. And Jesus appears to him and says why are you persecuting me? And Paul says who are you? And obviously, Jesus says, "It's I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And Jesus tells Ananias, another person in Damascus, to go to Paul. And this is what he says about um, what he tells him. He says, Jesus says to Ananias, Go for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, just what he's doing in Acts 13, and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was true for Paul, but it's true for every person who's saved. We are chosen instruments of God. And God, in His sovereign grace, overcomes our natural desire to just thrust away good news and to say, I don't want it. God overcomes that graciously and mercifully. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. When before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Not to the praise of the preacher, not to the praise of my being so smart to choose Jesus when many people don't, but to, to the praise of God's grace in choosing us and in working to save us. God gets all the glory for our belief in our salvation. And this is important in terms of sharing the gospel, lest we think that if somebody actually believes When we share the gospel that, wow, it must have been because I did such a great job. I was so persuasive, or I was so wise, or I just knew knew my Bible so well. And we pat ourselves on the back because we think that we had something to do with it. We did have something to do with it because God uses us, but we didn't have that to do with it. It was God's grace and mercy. And another passage is Ephesians 2 that basically says... um, whenever I talk to someone who's not a believer, I'm talking to a dead person. It says all of us were dead people, even those of us here who are believing before we believe, we were dead. Not physically dead, but it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But it goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what does it mean to say God say that we're saved by grace through faith? We're saved by grace because God raises dead people and gives them life. He uses us in proclaiming the gospel, but God is the one who raises the dead and gives them Faith, It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. Well, let me wrap this up in the next few minutes here with the last, last point. The last point is, even though it's true that the unbeliever is responsible for his unbelief, And the believer isn't responsible for his belief. Ultimately, God is responsible. We might get confused if we think the issue in all of this is the doctrine of election. The issue is not the doctrine of election or belief in the doctrine of election. The issue is belief in Jesus Christ. And that should be our focus when we're talking to people about the gospel. We're not supposed to bring in the the doctrine of election as if they need to understand the doctrine of election to be saved. They don't. I would bet many of us here were saved in a church that did not preach the doctrine of election. But you were saved anyway, even though you did not believe the doctrine of election. And so it's important to think about that because the bottom line is, who can come to Christ? Everyone who's willing to. All who are willing can come to Christ. The, the offer is made to everyone who will come to Christ. Although All those God makes willing to come. Because in our sin, we won't come. If someone doesn't come to Christ, whose fault is it? It's their own fault. If someone does come to Christ, why do they come? It's God's work. But all that being said, the issue is belief in Christ, not an understanding of how it all comes about. The issue is whether or not I believe in Christ. Even John Calvin said this in light of these verses we are talking about today. He said, again, many because many entangle themselves in doubtful and thorny imaginations while they seek for their salvation in the hidden counsel of God, let us learn that the, the election of God is therefore approved by faith, that our minds may be turned to Christ as, to the pledge of ele- excuse me, as unto the pledge of election, and that they may seek no other certainty save that which is revealed to us in the gospel. I say, let this seal suffice us that whoever believes in the only begotten Son of God has eternal life. What he's saying here is many people get hung up on the doctrine of election. He says that's not the issue. Believing it is not the issue. Um, Understanding it is not the issue. The issue is whether or not you actually believe in Christ. The issue is John 3.36, which he quotes at the end of that, that quote. He says, let let this be enough for us to know that whoever believes in the only begotten Son of God has eternal life. That's the most important thing to know. And that's why um, Charles Simeon was a Reformed uh, preacher in England and um, he didn't like the fact that a lot of people uh, assume that you had to understand the doctrine of election in, in order to be a Christian. Or to even say, share the gospel. And one day he, he had a talk with John Wesley. Who was not a Calvinist. Charles Simeon was a Calvinist. That's way he understood how God worked in this election. John Wesley was an Arminian. He understood it differently. But there was a discussion they had. And I've shared this before. But Charles Simeon is talking to John Wesley. And he says, I understand that uh, we're supposed to be fighting each other we supposed to be drawing our swords and, and going at it, do, you know, fighting over our differences regarding these doctrines, God's sovereignty and human responsibility and all that sort of thing, just like we talked about at the beginning. But he said, can I just ask you some questions? So Charles Simeon asked, asked uh, John Wesley, Sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? And John Wesley said, yes, I do indeed. Charles Simeon said, do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? And Wesley said, yes, solely through Christ. Simeon asked, sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? Wesley said, no, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Simeon says, allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? And Wesley said, no. Simeon asked, what then? Are you to be held up every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? And Wesley said, yes, all together. Simeon said, And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? And Wesley said, Yes, I have no hope but in him. This was the Calvinist conclusion to what he heard from the Arminian. He says, Then, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again. For this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold, and as I hold it. And therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. He's essentially saying the issue is belief in Christ, trust in Christ, rest in Christ. It's not the doctrine of election, whether we believe it or whether we understand it. That is not the issue. The issue is when you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? We don't say because I did this or because I was chosen. No, we say because Jesus lived the life I could never live. He died the death I deserve to die. He rose from the dead and he offered me forgiveness and eternal life if I would simply believe. It's all because of Jesus. I'm trusting in him and him alone. That's the answer. It has nothing to do with whether or not we believe in the doctrine of election. Now, there's great comfort in understanding that doctrine appropriately. And it's in the Bible. But when it comes to actually talking to people, many of whom either don't understand it or don't believe it, that's not the issue for us. The issue is Jesus. The issue is, where are you putting your hope for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life? Is it in Jesus and Jesus alone? Or is it in your own goodness, your own works, your own efforts? Or even in your own belief in a certain set of doctrines? You can be a Calvinist and go to hell. Just like you can be an Arminian and go to hell. Just belief in certain doctrines is not the issue. The issue is belief in Jesus trusting in a person, not a doctrine. That is the issue. And that's who we want to present. We want to present Jesus. Because he is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We pray that it would encourage us as we seek to p- pursue our happiness and the happiness of others. As we seek to love people with the gospel. Father, I'm so weak in this area in terms of doing this practically and Uh, in relationships, but I pray that you'd grow me in this. I pray that you'd grow us in this and that you'd give us greater and greater opportunities to share the good news of Jesus, the good news of the Lord and the Savior that you've provided for sinners. And we just pray that we would be encouraged both by your sovereignty over all things, as well as the reality that it's not our responsibility to to save people. But we can freely and should um, enjoy the adventure of being a part of what you're doing to save a people for yourself and to love people with the good news. Help us to do that in greater and greater ways. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.